The Interchange is brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals has been serving EPCs with the highest quality combiner boxes, junction boxes, wires, racking, and monitoring solutions for over two decades. And now, it presents the BLA Solution, an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and slashes installation costs. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, including more about BLA, visit www.shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S.com. The interchange is also supported by FiveWorks, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Hey, utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you are looking for FiveWorks. FiveWorks personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how FiveWorks can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com slash the interchange. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, and follow the link on the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. In Boston, I'm Stephen Lacey, and I'm joined by Shale Khan, who is my first mate and co-host out in Berkeley, California. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. Happy to be your first mate. <laughs> How are you? You've, uh, you've been on stage a lot lately. Seems like you're at a new conference every week. Yeah, it sort of felt that way lately. Wait, does that mean that you're my captain? If I'm your first mate, or you might, do I have to call you captain? I I we're definitely on equal footing. Captain. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm I'm the superior in any way, but uh, I guess we're just co-captains in this journey. <laughs> oh, captain, my captain! What a great conversation we're about to have. If there ever was a captain of the distributed grid, maybe Ryan Hanley of Advanced Microgrid Solutions would be a candidate. Um, he'd definitely be on that voyage. And you talked to him at a uh, an energy conference there in Berkeley a couple weeks ago. Tell me about that conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it was great. Uh, really fun. This was at the Burke Energy Summit uh, at UC Berkeley. They hold a conference every year. And Ryan and I were fortunate enough to get up on stage together and chat for an hour or so. Uh, and it was really a great conversation. Ryan's a friend of mine, but he's also um, one of the more accomplished and interesting thinkers about the future of the grid and in particular, the way that distributed energy resources are playing on it and should play on it. And he's also just got like a really interesting uh, track record in the sector that we talked a lot about because he came out of business school. He worked at Pacific Gas and Electric, the utility in Northern California. He then jumped to Solar City. He did. He ran the grid engineering team at Solar City. He then worked at Tesla after the acquisition. He worked on the 100 megawatt battery in South Australia that Tesla built in 100 days. And then more recently, he went to work at Advanced Microgrid Solutions, which of course is doing you know sort of hybrid behind the meter and grid services battery projects uh, throughout the country and and I think looking international. So he's been in a bunch of different spots that have allowed him some interesting lenses into this market. So we had a fun conversation. 
This is a really nice compliment to last week's conversation where we introed our show talking about aggregated distributed resources to serve wholesale markets. And what we're finding is that that's a, still a pretty theoretical conversation. But when you look at the impact of uh, distributed resources and aggregated distributed resources in retail markets on the distribution system, well, that's much more tangible. It's something that's happening today. And there are businesses creating real models around the evolution of that market. So uh, I'd say there's a really nice compliment here. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think that though a lot of this is nascent and new to the extent that anybody is is doing it, it's basically the places where Ryan has been. You know, Solar City was pioneering a fair amount of it before the acquisition. Tesla continues to pioneer a number of these solutions. And then now Advanced Microgrid Solutions was sort of built on this model in the first place. So uh, again, Ryan, as much as anybody has visibility into sort of what works and what doesn't and where the big challenges are. Okay, great. A lot of juicy stuff there. I know that you listeners are going to love this. Before we get into it, Shale, you have one last thing to tell us. Big announcement on your end. Yeah, I have some personal news, which is, as I think most listeners know, um, I left GTM full-time as of late last year. I've continued to work as an advisor and uh, and obviously doing this podcast and love GTM and always will, but uh, have been trying to figure out what my next big challenge is going to be. And I am really pleased and very excited to announce that uh, as of this week, I am joining Energy Impact Partners, um, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. But for those of you who have not, Energy Impact Partners is this really unique and fascinating investment firm. Um, their LPs, their investors are almost exclusively utilities. And indeed, some of the biggest utilities in the country and in the world are investors in the EIP fund. And then EIP is, is going out and investing in uh, itself in in sort of the next generation electricity technologies. So they have invested in companies ranging from Green Lots, which does electric vehicle charging, to Sense, which is residential energy disaggregation, to a number of companies that provide utilities with DER visibility and control and analytics, companies like AutoGrid and Opus One, you know, sort of uh, CNI energy engagement platforms like First Fuel, and actually related to today's conversation, Advanced Microgrid Solutions, where Ryan is the current chief product officer, is is one of EIP's investments. So I'm going to be running research and strategy for EIP, um, which, you know, as somebody who's just kind of made a career out of being really intellectually curious about what is coming next in energy and particularly in electricity. Uh, I'm really excited about this because EIP has this completely unique ecosystem, which is comprised of these utility partners, uh, including, you know, AGL in Australia, National Grid, Southern Company, Excel Energy, Alliant Energy, my hometown utility of Madison Gas and Electric from Madison, Wisconsin, and a bunch more. So they've got the utilities on one side, they've got this portfolio of next generation technology companies on the other side. Um, and then they've got their investment team and research and strategy team internally who are just working to try to figure out both what's coming next and where the good investments will be within it. So I'm really excited to be joining the team and, uh, and, you know, we'll be continuing to do the interchange throughout. So I'm not going anywhere. That is such a cool gig. Sounds like you're going to be right at home there. And I can't wait to uh, hear about all the things that you learn in that new job that you can apply here in the podcast. And that is of course, 
what my question was when I heard you were going to EIP. It was, hey, I'm really happy for you. That's all great. But are you still doing the podcast? And yes, indeed, you are still doing the podcast. So a lot of your learnings in that new gig can be applied here. I certainly hope so. Um, and it's a fun coincidence that the the conversation that we're following with this week is is with one of EIP's portfolio companies. And one of my favorite ones, Advanced Microgrid Solutions, is just a really cool company. All right. Well, congratulations again. Uh, super happy for you. And I'm super psyched for this conversation with Ryan Hanley, who's the Chief Product Officer for Advanced Microgrid Solutions. Two grid geeks geeking out on stage. What could be better? Enjoy. Thank you so much. It's like a Warriors game here. So I am very pleased to be here today with Ryan Hanley sitting to my left and to your right. Ryan is a friend of mine and is also the chief product officer at Advanced Microgrid Solutions currently. Uh, And we'll talk a lot about Ryan's other roles, what else he's done in his career. Ryan, thank you so much for being here with me. Jail, I'm thrilled. Thanks so much. So let's start with this. Uh, we're sitting here at on UC Berkeley's campus, and you are an alum. Uh, you went to Haas Business School here. Uh, how is Berkeley the same, and how is it different from when you were here? I, I am an alum, and as we mentioned before, the no small part of me being excited to come back is this is three minutes from my house, so it's on my commute home. Uh, thrilled to be here. We come up to campus every weekend. It has changed when I was here. Uh, the folks in the audience know I think there's a reception at the Bears Lair after this, which is now a very classy establishment and, and serves Manhattans. When I was here, the Bears Lair was a dive bar that had about an inch of beer on the floor, and you couldn't get out without having your stu- shoes uh, stuck to the floor. And So I think overall, Berkeley's getting classier. Right. <laughs> I'm, I live in Berkeley as well. I moved here a little under a year ago, so I, I'd like to think I classed the place up. I know that you moved to Berkeley. We got beers when you arrived, and you still have not invited me to your place, however. We've only met at a third-party establishment. So. I said that I'm classy. I didn't say my place was... Anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Um, so what I'd like to do with you is, so since leaving Berkeley, you graduated in, uh, from business school in 2011, you've had a succession of what I think are really interesting roles, all of which are in the energy industry and all of which sort of have a, a sort of common thread to them. So I want to use your career arc as a way to talk about some of the things that have been happening in the energy sector. You've told me a couple of times that one of the sort of overarching principles behind how you've directed your career in this sector this whole time um, is that you believe there is significant and increasing value in distributed resources. Why do you have such conviction on that, that you're like betting your whole career on it? Yeah, it's maybe less of a principle and more when I was starting out and I was attracted to the grid. I was a civil engineer by training, so really like the big massive aspects of the grid and all the challenges it has. I was looking for what I would say were macro trends, a little bit less than principles, trends that I thought were going to uh, persist across my career, which was which was early at the time. And I started looking for signals on, on the grid. And one that really resonated with me is thinking about the grid as, as a portfolio of assets and borrowing from financial portfolio theory, the best portfolio of assets is a diverse set of assets to share risk and upside. 
And it occurred to me that the grid is a collection of assets that are absolutely not diverse. It is almost concentrated in these large, massive assets on the transmission system and in many ways centralized. And so if you are following this you know, path towards a natural equilibrium of the grid, I came to believe that it would have to become more diverse to share some of the risk and to name some of those risks, things like single point of failure or resiliency in the transmission grid um, or some of the papers coming out of FERC in the last couple of years that talk about if you struck six different substations on the transmission network, the whole grid could go down. Uh, so that was really important to me. It lodged in my brain that going towards diversity was really powerful. And the biggest way to increase diversity was through smaller assets, given we're starting from this large uh, perspective. And fast forward you know, almost a decade, and I have effectively lodged my career behind distributed assets and trying to find the most value out of distributed assets in a lot of different creative ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the cybersecurity stuff that you talked about is, is terrifying to me, um, as I've said many times. But you know, I, I, I think if you think about the financial portfolio theory component to that, and just that there's value in having different kinds of resources, I mean, I would think you could take that in a bunch of different directions, and, and theoretically, you could just use it as an excuse to say we should be doing basically anything that we're not doing now, right? Diversity, you're saying, well, we have all power lines that are you know AC, we should be doing DC. You know, there's any number of ways in which you should be. You could say that diversity has value, but in particular, you're saying diversity of the scale of resources, right? Uh, diversity has value, and but it's not so clarifying that it it picks technologies for you. So you know you can't draw a conclusion about whether DC or AC is valuable at such a high level, like a using a trend like uh, diversity. But it does. It gave me signals to say, you know. Don't go focus on solely massive assets, these massive generators. Uh, they're incredibly powerful for the system. There's tremendous amount of innovation, no doubt, that's going to occur in that part of the industry. But there's probably even more going to happen on the distributed side. Right. Uh, but you know, it's not a roadmap. Who knows what on the distributed side will actually be successful until you start trying it out. Uh, it's more of a multi-decade arc for me as opposed to really elucidating any individual technology. Yeah, and we'll talk about this too. I mean, I think the other the the underlying piece of that is that it's sort of predicated on the idea that there that the economics of those distributed assets, the value has to be sufficient that it's worth putting them on the grid. You don't just do it for the purpose of diversity, you do it for diversity and because it makes economic sense. And and a lot of the work that you've done is sort of making the case or proving out the point that there are economic there is economic value in smaller resources. That's right. And and you know, this is a macro trend, I believe, partly because I've investigated so many trends and a lot of them have fallen out over the years. Some of the things that we've done a lot of research on, uh, teams that I've worked on, is exactly what is the value of distributed resources, but also what are some of the costs that are locked in the system by going without diversity. And we had one analysis that was really powerful for me that, that I ran during my time at Solar City, where we looked at... Uh, the time in we looked at the investment of large assets in the in the grid and how far out in the future they were forecasting load changes in order to say find the right size capacity of a transmission line and intuitively the further you look out the more wrong you are and as you get into these larger assets and these bigger assets that have decades of lifespan you start getting all these assets that you are stuck with and increasingly they're the wrong tool for the job and that 
was powerful for me because it started to cement there's additional value here inherent in making smaller choices that you then can walk back from or adjust. You're not stuck into this collection of bets that last 60 years without any recourse to change them if the grid changes. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how that's played out for you and the roles that you've had and, and what that means about what's going on in the market. So out of business school, you joined PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the, the big investor-owned utility here in Northern California. pg and in my mind, is a really interesting utility in that it is simultaneously one of the more progressive utilities, specifically on the topics that we've been talking about, integrating more, for example, rooftop solar than any other utility in the country by a long shot, um, and doing all sorts of interesting things around that. Simultaneously, it's gone through all these sort of trials and tribulations of various kinds, ranging from political scandals to a pipeline explosion to you know bankruptcy, whatever it was, 18 years ago or something like that, to now wildfires. So, you know, it's a company that um, that you can look at and through a bunch of different lights. What were, what were you doing at PG&E and how did sort of the overarching things that were happening to the company affect your ability to, to do things that were innovative? Let me tell you first how I got to PG&E. I don't think we've talked about this, Shale. Mm. I at, at the time, I was here at Berkeley and I was dead set on doing a startup and I success. I, you went to PG&E, I, you're right? So I'm setting up a failure, not a failure, an interesting turn or pivot in my life, Shale. And I, uh, you did go to business school. <laughs> go on. And actually, we we were just talking with some uh, two advisors of mine in the audience uh, who helped me down that startup path. And I actually was here at Berkeley in a class called Clean Tech to Market, where I got going. And we had some success. We got uh, $100,000 in, in seed funding, and we were going to build sensors that we're going to sell to utilities and tell them when their power lines were going to fail before they were going to, to fail. And we got going. I realized two things. Selling hardware to utilities is really hard. That takes about uh, 10 years. I didn't really learn that so much as I was told by about two dozen VCs who, who laughed at me. And, and number two, I realized I was trying to sell to a customer, a utility, that I knew nothing about. And I had no experience with the utility. I didn't understand the grid. And it was uh, an important moment for me to say I should go and invest. And uh, PG&E was an amazing spot for me to land. I, I love my time there, and I got exactly what I was looking for, which is trying to get closer to how the industry runs, how the grid operates. And, and I went deep into the operational side of PG&E and uh, eventually into the technology side on how to actually manage assets on the grid. So let's talk about that for one second. I think it's it's one thing that folks who do pay a lot of attention to the growth of distributed energy, they often discount the challenges that those resources present to distribution grid engineers and system planners who sit within the utility whose job it is to make sure that the lights stay on. So what does that actually look like? If you're sitting within a utility doing distribution grid engineering, and all of a sudden a bunch of resources start popping up on your system. How do you deal with that? I'll say distribution engineers are wittier than you would expect. And so you sit next to these folks, and uh, they're in the middle of Silicon Valley. And numerous times I would overhear these conversations of engineers on my team complain how they're the only real engineers uh, in the valley because only they make decisions that literally uh, are of life and death consequence. Uh, and it was tongue-in-cheek, and they don't really mean it, but it does indicate the burden that these uh, these folks carry when they make these decisions about infrastructure that could either bring tremendous prosperity or also a lot of harm, as, as California knows. 
and it's humbling to, to see that and realize some of the burden of my decisions in my career paled in comparison to the burden that, that these folks had to make. So when they think about an asset like DERs, they're not thinking about creative technologies or this wonderful world of opportunity. They see uh, the burden of making rigorous decisions. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for them. I have a lot of respect uh, for all utilities. I think utilities have gotten right the rigor that they think about uh, the, the weight of making these decisions of changing the grid. I just want to say, I heard that Facebook is thinking about an unlike button, and that feel, feels pretty life or death to me. Big, big time. To be fair to the other part of Silicon Valley. Um, uh, so, is it uh, Jenner? You, you could see what happens to Snap when you have people get really upset with the features you roll out. So it is life and death for sure. Yeah, that's a real timely reference. This podcast is going to last ten years from now. Everyone's going to know what you're talking about. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, and nobody in the room knows what you're talking about today. The um, <laughs> so, what is it? What does that actually mean? Then, how does it play out? You are a distribution grid engineer, and you have this this totally justified rigor because you are making life or death decisions. You want to keep the lights on for everybody. What do distributed energy resources look like to you right now? I think less than the, the challenge. I don't think there's a challenge with engineers assessing the opportunities and challenges appropriately. You know, any engineer, given the, the tools and the resolve, can solve any problem. Uh, this is a, we see this all over the place. I think the, the tools are part of the challenge. And it's information available to engineers. It is decades of training and schooling. When you go through an entire career and you're taught to plan a system around single assets that are reliable and resilient, and you're asked to then change the paradigm and say, let me rely on running the grid with a bunch of different assets in a portfolio. Any individual one is not reliable or resilient. And you have to think of these new principles to say, how do I surf on top of all of these assets that are changing all the time? Uh, it's not a, a capacity challenge with, with individual engineers who are brilliant and talented in these, in these utilities. It's giving them the tools, the information, the training to uh, enable them to assess a different problem. And so part of it are the ecosystem problems uh, or ecosystem opportunities like training, tools. It definitely manifests itself in the propensity of utilities to focus on pilots. They want to see it works before they can make that, that mental leap. And, and so it starts, I think it's more on the tooling, and it goes further up the chain from there. Uh, the, the tools are also fairly easy to create if, if you have the resolve. And that's one of the things that I really noticed at my time, which is, Engineers, given the, the space and the tools and, and the, the time, can come up with any solution. Being able to identify strategically that an organization needs to embrace the future is hard for any organization. And history, obviously, is littered with all these, all, all these examples, and energy is going to be no different. Pulling yourself away from what you know and in utilities you know, are decades of a business model and having the resolve to embrace the future is very challenging. And I think that is an obstacle that I saw in my time at PG&E as much more challenging than any individual, individual engineer trying to uh, encourage them to think about DRs differently. We're going to put this conversation on hold for just a minute to talk about our sponsors, very innovative companies that are helping bring you this show for free and innovating in the industry. The first is Shoals Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of systems solutions for solar and storage. The Shoals slogan, inventing simple. No matter the product, 
A combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, monitoring system, Scholl's makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. Scholl's new BLA solution embodies this approach. So BLA is an integrated wire harness, and it eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. Scholl's has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and after years of exponential growth, this American company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation, and its products are featured in some of the world's biggest solar projects. So if you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, including the BLA solution, contact Scholl's. You can find more at www.scholl's.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Scholl's.com. The interchange is also brought to you by FiveWorks. Times are changing for utilities. They're changing fast. You hear about it all the time on this podcast. And in this digital age, the world expects more from them, getting beyond meter data. Not only are utilities being asked to better engage and service their customers, but to anticipate their changing expectations and their preferences. So what does it truly mean to know your customers, like really know them? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? With FiveWorks, absolutely. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange. That's five works with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, or follow the link on the podcast page to begin engaging the customer of one. The utility, the worst thing that can happen to a utility is a significant blackout. You know, that, that's the absolute last thing that they want. And so having a bunch of new types of resources, whether they're distributed, whether they're clean or not, just new things, and then trying to, you know, sort of change the paradigm of how you're thinking about them creates some risk that there's something you haven't thought of yet and that that'll cause an outage. And that's like your worst fear. So, you know, I think there's understandable caution. And I guess the question is, how do you, how do you harness that caution into ensuring that the transition occurs smartly as opposed to stopping it from occurring altogether? I think a measured pace of change is entirely appropriate. You achieve a measured pace of change if you know what you're changing towards. And if you know that there is a one-way direction of changing the grid to be more distributed, more resilient, more reliable, and you work backwards from that and you slowly introduce change over time, that to me is a wholly appropriate and successful approach. I think some of the challenges are thinking about obstacles, share like the one you just mentioned, and having that stop the thinking or having that stop the resolve to get to, to the end goal. And it takes a lot of courage and, I th- uh, and reading of the tea leaves, uh, which nobody's reading of the tea leaves are ever accurate, and there's a lot of ambiguity. And you know, it's no mystery to me why these things take a while, but uh, you know, once again, it's not really solely technical. I think there's a, there needs to be a lot of belief and, and resolve around the where the trends are going and embracing that to see this change in reality. Right. So let's move forward then in your career. So you jump from PG&E to SolarCity, which at the, you know, SolarCity from my outside perception had at times a very friendly, at times a very antagonistic relationship with utilities. And it varied both on, on when you were looking at Solar City and on what part of Solar City you were looking at. So where did you sit within Solar City and what were you doing? Well, I sat in, a, I wore many different hats. I ran a team that was called our grid engineering solutions team. 
And we, we were started by our, our founder, Peter Rive, hired me, and we got the team going. And it started early on to provide utility context or a good context into Solar City. Solar City was just getting into some challenges on interconnection in Hawaii. They were, you may remember there was a big Hawaii solar moratorium back in 2013. And I was the first hire to come in and say, hey, can you help us? Um, overcome this technical technical challenge. Let's talk about that for one second because it's actually an interesting case. I mean, Hawaii people talk about it as being a postcard from the future on the right. grid. So what was actually happening there, as I remember, was HECO or the utilities or the state or somewhere had set uh, limits on how much solar you could interconnect on a particular feeder, and they were start and there was like a hundred percent of peak capacity on that feeder, mm-hmm. and we were starting to get enough solar so that we were actually hitting that capacity limit, and that was cutting off new solar interconnection sort of location by location throughout Hawaii. So what was the solution to that? Yeah, they were operating off a technical threshold on something called transient overvoltage, and they had uh, come to the conclusion that there was a a threshold that made sense across the island. I think it was 120% of minimum daytime load at at the time. And when they reached it, they shut off the, the valves. And our contention that ended up proving itself out was that seems like a wholly appropriate threshold, but also wholly arbitrary uh, in the longer term thinking. And let's investigate that. It may not be the right technical threshold. And we did what, you know, something I'm really proud of. There was a a cross industry consortium that investigated it. HECO worked alongside my team and I and NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab. And we set up some tests, set up some hypotheses, and investigated, and, and sure enough, the limit was um, more than double the, the current limit that was shutting off the island. And it was a really great collaboration that immediately turned into raising these thresholds. And now we're in the land of these dynamic thresholds as, as opposed to arbitrary thresholds. And folks in California will know things like uh, integration capacity analysis and being able to do this analysis for a specific location is now best practice. And it's... Um, it was a fruitful engagement for Solar City. I think it was a fruitful engagement for the industry and was how we got going at Solar City. It really started technical, but then it grew significantly from there uh, into, into some other avenues. Yeah, so let's talk about those other avenues because what was some of the stuff that I really liked that was coming out of your group at, at Solar City at the time was um, what I thought was some of the more innovative thinking around just defining what values all these distributed resources should have on the grid, and then exactly what the limitations were for monetizing those values or allowing those values to be recognized today. So, how would you characterize all that work? I think it started from a principle that that Pete Rive helped set us up for. It, Pete, you know, admittedly, grid engineering solutions is about uh, smooth off the, the tongue as. as uh, uh, it, it's a mouthful. So, so Pete coined us the term GridX, and, and GridX we borrowed from the Valley, and it made us feel like the ambitions were high and we could swing big. And, and we started to. We started to think about our own principles, and one of the principles we cared a lot about was not don't focus on the near-term opportunities of arbitrage in the industry. Focus on what the natural equilibrium is going to be in the industry and get really good at that business so that we could help Solar City be really successful there. And we started doing a lot of thinking about what those trends were and those macro trends, going back to the initial part of our conversation. And uh, that manifested itself in some white papers and thought pieces and 
I think that's what you're referencing, Shale. One of our our first conversation on on this interchange was on one of those white papers. Yeah, one that I really liked. Um, it seemed to me, and you can tell me whether this is the th- the right thinking. You know, so Solar City had built a business model off of selling third party ownership of of residential solar assets. They did a bunch of other things as time went on, but that was the core of it, um, based on a net metering paradigm. And then net metering started to come under threat as location by location, utilities were were pushing to roll back net metering or change the rules and things like that. And initially Solar City was was opposed at least publicly opposed to sort of any changes to net metering, basically. But then as the grid engineering work started to come up, it seemed to me like what the the posturing of Solar City was starting to be, well, look, there's all this additional value. These resources have additional value on the grid. That value is not recognized today. Work with us, regulators, utilities, and so on, work with us to figure out how to to yield that value for the purpose of the grid and we'll take a portion of that. And in exchange for that, we're willing to work with you on rate design and perhaps changes to net metering, perhaps introduction of time of use rates and other things that utilities were pushing for at the time. Was that the right thinking? That's right. It, the The business needed, you know, NEM or whatever way that Solar City was going to get paid was really critical to its business model. That made a lot of sense. And we were asked to support those near-term business objectives. So we were asked to write a NEM defense piece, effectively. And that objective clashed with that principle I said, which is focus on where the uh, uh, equilibrium is going to be. And what we turned it into is said, well, writing a NEM defense piece doesn't really live with that principle. Let's look out further and say, what is the contribution of a portfolio of DERs? And what can that portfolio add to the grid? And, you know, shale, the the paper that came out, it included analysis that certainly could be packaged and inform an M defense piece. And in fact, it was. uh, You may know that I was our industry representative testifying in Nevada on the the NEM battle because we had done this analysis. So that was a fun experience. Mm. Um, But the rest of the paper was much more about principles of how the industry could change and utility business models and integrated distribution planning. Uh, which was crying out for a venue in the DRP here in California, and data models and what data should be shared. It was in a much bigger umbrella uh, uh, white paper that allowed us to feel like we were going after where the industry was going, not necessarily just writing a NEM defense piece. I just want to spend one minute on the utility business model piece of it, um, and then we should move on to, to your next role. But the one of the things that came out of, I can't remember whether it was your group or whether it was Pete himself, um, was talking about the fact that one of the challenges is if you have all these distributed resources, they have value to the grid, but the utilities business model today doesn't mean they can earn a rate of return on services that they procure from those resources. Mm-hmm. So their incentive is to build stuff that they can put in the ground and then put in their rate base and earn their rate of return. So I remember Pete uh, talking about needing to open up the possibility for utilities to earn their regulated rate of return or something like it on procured services from these resources. That then did actually become a proposal from Commissioner Florio in in California that, that as I understand it, hasn't really gone anywhere since. Do you still think that's the right model ultimately? Should utilities be able to earn a return on services procured from distributed resources? That specific question, I am, am not sure. The, the inspiration of trying to disconnect the utility business model from CapEx put in the ground, I 100% think is 
a path to explore. We were really informed when we were writing this. At the time, Shale, we coined it infrastructure as a service. That's what Pete was going around saying. We were informed by the UK regulatory model, a model called RIO, and the UK had done just this. They started to identify that incentivizing utilities uh, by giving them a rate of return on assets they put in the ground encourages one thing, put more assets in the ground. And they developed a pretty nuanced, some people would say complex, nobody says necessarily it was wholly successful, but they were really interesting components where they started to break up the utility return into a variety of things. Some, sure, was related to CapEx that they put in the ground, but the goal was to make the utility agnostic to whether they installed the asset or used someone else's assets to, to provide that service. And it started to unhinge them from this focus of only putting their own equipment in the ground. And we turned that into the California context in this paper, started to coin it as infrastructure as a service. Um, uh, Commissioner Florio picked up a component of it. And I wouldn't say it's dead. I think it's still in the IR, uh, the IDER proceeding. Uh, but you're right. I, I think it's after Flor uh, Commissioner Florio left, it is probably missing a champion right now in the commission. Right. Okay, so then SolarCity gets bought by Tesla, and all of a sudden now you work at Tesla. Um, and I know you, you did a whole bunch of things for Tesla, and we're not going to talk about all of them, but let's focus on one that I suspect will be interesting to everybody, which is um, thanks to a series of tweets over the course of a weekend, all of a sudden Tesla has to build the biggest battery in the world in South Australia in 100 days. And you are tasked with a portion of that work. So first of all, what did, so what did you have to do on that? And how challenging is it? You know, on the on the outside, it sounds like impressive and amazing. Is it really easy to just build a battery and have it work in a hundred days, or yeah. is it? Uh, is it? I see some crow's eyes around your eyes, so I suspect I've got it. that's have from. Have you done it? Yeah, <laughs> everybody's done. No, I, thanks for that, Shale. And let me back up a little bit to Solar City and cue this up a, a little bit more. We talked some about some of the papers and some of the academic thinking at Solar City, which is interesting. All of that was secondary to what we really loved doing, which is developing our advanced product roadmap. And so we were developing this cross-functional team that felt informed, tried to feel informed about where the industry was going, felt informed about what SolarCity was very good at, and we were testing new products all the time, uh, testing new capabilities. We launched, uh, at the time, the Smart Energy Home in Hawaii, which was a residential home that had solar and storage and load control and smart inverters all in a finance package. And that was a big success for us. We um, put the foundation in for a big contract that we ended up signing later with Green Mountain Power. That was a 2000 battery aggregation in Vermont that was doing six different use cases at the time, including wholesale revenues. And also an interesting utility business model case, because Green Mountain Power is selling that to customers. That's or offering right. that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, which could take us down a whole path about Vermont regulation, which I'd love to do, but maybe not today. Really? <laughs> like everybody's interested in Vermont regulation. Are, that's what my wife says, uh, but I, I doubt it. Um, and so we were coming into the time of the Tesla acquisition with this burgeoning uh, portfolio of interesting products, and we were right at the tipping point of then turning those best ideas we had a lot of bad ideas. We killed a lot of bad ones, but some of the good ones, we were getting customers signed and we were close to then rolling these out either in a business unit or as part of the core business. And I mentioned that because some of the capabilities were the reasons why we um, might have been involved in, in the project that you mentioned. 
and Shale, note this as the point where I start picking my words very carefully and focusing only on information that's publicly available. In theory, if one were to have to build a 100 <laughs> megawatt battery in 100 days in South Australia, how would one go about doing it? What I'll say is, is Tesla is an exhilarating place, and this project was an exhilarating project. And part of that exhilaration comes from having no control over anything, and these big winds of change come in brought by tweets exchanged with uh, billionaire friends across small the version ocean. of America right now. Sorry, <laughs> couldn't help myself. Right. Jenner, see, Jenner yeah. is appropriate in this yeah, conversation. There you go. Oh, that's sure. Um, and that was that was fun and daunting and challenging. And it's not just the headwinds at a place like Tesla. There are all of these armies of people doing heroic work to do things that haven't been done before. And so, a project like that took a tremendous amount of people across the organization creating. Uh, new ideas on the spot in 100 days. It took a tremendous amount of coordination across those different silos, which the coordination alone was was tremendously exciting. And then you know, my role and, and folks on my team did have a contribution in an area where we, we delivered. And that 100 days looked like day one, we all were terrified and not sure what to do. Uh, day two, we were terrified and not sure what to do, and then eventually you start making a plan and, and, and you get after it. Um, you, you know, relying on what's publicly available, there about three, four weeks ago was a series of articles that uh, proclaimed something like Tesla makes a million dollars in a day on the 100 megawatt battery in, in South Australia. And, and those articles give my team and I a lot of, of pride uh, because we were able to put in a system that took, at the time, and I think maybe still the world's largest battery, and do what we thought about in those white papers back in Solar City, which is stack uh, dozens, more than, more than a dozen different products simultaneously to get the most amount of revenues that you could uh, to pay for that battery, which then in turn adds in a reduction in cost through the lower grid and all these sorts of things. So it was a microcosm for us of proving that we, we could do it in a real project under a tight deadline. So that's a good way to transition into your current role because there's a tie in the figuring out how to stack a bunch of products on a battery or using a battery together. So let's talk about that. So you jumped ship from Tesla to Advanced Microgrid Solutions a few months ago now. You're in four and a half months in. Four and a half months in. And uh, so you're in charge of product for, for AMS. Tell us a little bit, I think AMS of the, the companies that we've mentioned, um, anybody who's in the energy storage sector or probably in the California energy sector knows AMS. But give us the quick story on what AMS does. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about the challenge of co-optimization for a battery. Sure. AMS takes individual energy assets or portfolio of assets and, and optimizes them to uh, provide the maximum value that they can on the grid. And AMS has this wonderful growth story and origination around Susan Kennedy, the, the CEO, who used to be the chief of staff for Governor Schwarzenegger and then was a commissioner on the California Public Utilities Commission. And uh, Susan and her co-founders developed this, this company five years ago. One of their early successes was a massive contract with Southern California Edison, uh, who valiantly and with a lot of strategy, I think in my mind, procured a lot of what's called local capacity from distributed resources or, or 
um, alternative resources. AMS got 50 megawatt component of that contract, and their business model was neat. They were going to put batteries behind commercial and industrial customer meters and provide capacity back into the utility when they wanted it, but also then save the, the customer money and take it to the wholesale markets. Um, so three big use cases there. Now sounds obvious. Five years ago, that was a pretty big leap. I've been told repeatedly that I'm not supposed to use the term value stacking, but I'm going to do it anyway. So what AMS was built on was the idea of value stacking. That's that's three right there. You've got one battery. It can only do one th- two things. It can charge and it can discharge, right? And you are trying to offer capacity services to the utility. You're trying to save the, the customer on their demand charges. So you have to take a look at their load and predict when they're going to have the peakiest load and shave that off. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to sell some kind of value into the wholesale markets. How big a challenge is that from a you know software and analytics perspective? How hard is it to figure out when to tell the battery to charge and discharge? It gets harder over time. I mean, if you're doing two use cases, it's it's easier than six. Uh, Eighteen is harder than six. Uh, so you add the complexity, and uh, you know eventually we should be doing as many are, are necessary. And I think it's on the order of a couple dozen. Um, you know, in, in Australia, I think you're talking about 18 different use cases at the same time if you're participating in the uh, the AMO market there. And what was attractive to, to me about AMS, we're going to get into sales pitch time here. I, we are taking investors, Shale. <laughs> uh, AMS, five years ago, built the platform on an idea at the time that was more being discussed. And so a lot of the storage folks were building single-use case platforms, do demand charge savings really well or build a derms platform where a utility could send you a signal you dispatch really well. Uh, AMS, um, from my view of the landscape, was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, to have revenue stacking built into every component of its software stack. And they were doing multiple revenue streams from day one. And so for somebody like me, who is now leading our engineering and our, and our product teams, being able to build with an infrastructure that from the beginning was was made to do all these different things, gives me a wonderful foundation to build all these advanced services on. Uh, it's not easy. Maybe importantly, it wasn't obvious, and it gives AMS really a head start on architecture to grow from there. Great. So we've got about 15 minutes left, and then we're going to take a few questions. Um, in, in the meantime, uh, we're going to play a game in a minute. <laughs> Before we play a game, this is a panel at a conference. I don't think I have to be more specific than that. So let's talk about blockchain, because that's right. what we do. <laughs> All right. Um, I know you've been thinking a bit about blockchain, as have I. Um, give me your and, and specifically, we won't talk about it for for all sorts of purposes. I don't want to talk about crypto kitties, but I want to talk <laughs> about blockchain applications in the energy sector and, and how you think about those. Yeah. So, um, what's your sort of overall view on on whether blockchain will have strong uses within this sector, and if so, what they might look like? Yeah, overall, I think it's outsized. I mean, I'm pretty convinced. Uh, the I think about blockchain as a potential outsized reward or also outsized risk if we we don't embrace it. And it's it's a it, one of the core reasons I like blockchain is a, maybe a second really big theme, macro theme that I've been tracking a little bit in my career is that in addition to the grid being distributed. The exchange of value over the grid, I'm convinced, will 
uh, only become more transactive over time, more value will be exchanged in, in markets as the system relentlessly tries to take out economic fat from the system. Uh, you have a lot of economic fat in tariffs, a lot of economic fat in bilateral contracts. Uh, you have less fat in, in markets. And when you get into this markets and you have a lot more complexity, it's really hard to codify that complexity in contracts written in the English language by lawyers and by people. And we're already butting up against this in our business right now, where we're trying to do these creative things. We can do these creative things on the platform side that I can't write into a contract. And so we were interested quite a long time ago of, uh, you know, a sign for me is when we sign a contract now at AMS, the first thing we do is the engineers translate that contract into JSON um, so that they can uh, put those constraints into our, our platform. That is a smart contract. And so there are all of these creative uses on being able to harness business ideas more effectively uh, just with the, the tool for, for the job, which I think blockchain is a tool for many jobs. Can you just describe for anybody who's not deeply embedded within blockchain why blockchain makes it easier to manage those kinds of what smart contracts are in the context of blockchain and, and why that allows for a little bit less friction? Yeah, it usually starts with trust. You know, trust sometimes is described around parties that you can't know for sure where the, uh, the counterparty is going to do what they say. Uh, it also can mean uh, a lack of ambiguity. Two lawyers may interpret the same contract very differently, and that's, in fact, why sometimes you get an arbitration over these things. Two engineers will, there's only one way to incorporate, sorry, to interpret code. And so, in some regards, blockchain and smart contracts specifically allow you to write interactions in, in something that is irrefutable. Uh, irrefutable on the meaning of the contract, but also uh, you can't ever get rid of that record because it's on a public ledger. Um, and so I, I'm mincing concepts here. You've got the ledger aspect, which is the core component to blockchain, and then you have these smart contracts, which is the hallmark to uh, Ethereum, the Ethereum network, and is starting to show up in some of these other networks out there. Um, yeah, all right. That? I, I, that's pretty good. I understood most of it, so I feel like that's, <laughs> that's fine. Um, okay, we're going to play a game. Oh, I was going to do another 20 minutes on blockchain. Well, let's oh, go to the game. All right. That comes over drinks. Um, so I know that it is a, a lifelong dream of yours to be on the NPR <laughs> quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, <laughs> it really so is, is a lifelong dream of mine to yeah. be on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yes. Call me Peter Sagal for a minute. <laughs> And we're going to play Which Boss Said This? <laughs> All right. The way this game is going to work is I'm going to read a quote, and you're going to have to tell me which of your four most recent bosses, which of the four CEOs of your most recent employers said covered. that. So I'll, for everybody in the audience, when you were at PG&E... Can I interject about my joy just to double down on how happy this makes me? It, it is true that I hope it would be the pinnacle of my professional career to be on, wait, wait, don't tell me. And if that ever happens, I'm going to forget this conversation ever happened with you. Well, I was just going to say, isn't the, the pinnacle of your career is being on the interchange right now? Yes, it, at this point, it's true. And if wait, wait, never happens, then I will on my deathbed think about this moment, Shale. So this has high That's consequence. Really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, If I can't find somebody better, you're going to be the best. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, we will play the game. So it is Wish Boss said this. So the four choices for everyone in the audience are going to be when you were at PG&E during that time, the CEO was Tony Early. Right. Then you went to Solar City. Lyndon Rive was the CEO and co-founder there. Then, of course, you were at Tesla. 
Um, I can't remember who the CEO of Tesla is. We'll come back to that one. Uh, and then now you are at AMS, and Susan Kennedy, as you mentioned, is your current CEO. That's right. So those are the four choices. All right. Quote You're number not one. Not going to get me in trouble with any of these questions. Well, there's only. <laughs> we're going to find out. So, quote number one: Our goal is to become the most compelling energy company of the 21st century. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Trick question, A through D. <laughs> they probably um, all have said some version of that. Who said it? Well, they, few CEOs can uh, not go after audacious claims like that in the media. Uh, but there was a period of time where I believe Lyndon was, was hitting the pavement pretty hard about the promise of Silver City, and he, he backed up uh, quite a bit of those. I'm, I'm going to go Lyndon, uh, and I think you really meant it. That is correct. All right. All right. You know, I didn't think to bring a bell. I should have brought a bell. (laughs) If I can interject about Lyndon, he said that, he meant it. And something I learned from Lyndon is that all of his employees meant it and and believed in it as well. Uh, It was an extremely mission-driven company that was really fun to be around. All right, moving on. (laughs) Next quote. Today, the auto companies don't make money on electric vehicles. It's a pretty pessimistic uh, view. So it's either Tony answering a question about the, the future of EVs or, or Elon being direct to an, an analyst question. Uh, I don't know if Elon would ever be that direct. I'm going to go with Tony. That is also correct. Right. This is where we have to interject and say you didn't tell me these questions beforehand. I did not know. I'm I'm impressed. I'm now I'm looking through my list to see if I can actually fool you with any (laughs) of these. Um, All right, we'll skip down a minute. Yeah, the future is bright for utilities. We're going to need utility power to increase, and we're going to need local power generation. Elon. Final answer. Yeah, that is also correct. All right, this is where you Too tell easy. me that I get Carl Castle's voice on my voicemail, I believe. <laughs> if you get three of the four, then I get Carl Castle. I, you know, the thing is, I don't know Carl Castle. I can offer you Stephen Lacey's voice on your it. I will take it. voicemail. An even more powerful prize. Um, who said this? <laughs> Electrons aren't blue or red. This should not be political part, politically partisan. And this is a reference to the transition to green energy. I do think Susan has a unique place in the industry, having... Uh, worked for uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations, and and she holds a unique place, I think, in the energy conversation. So that sounds like something Susan would say. And Wrong. She's all, oh, you tricked me. I gotcha. That was Tony Early. Surprisingly, that was actually a a utility CEO saying that on an analyst call, which they rarely talk about anything blue or red. So credit to him. You did get me. Okay. Let's do this one. There will always be someone who will tell you you can't do what you want to do. Entrenched industries will always set the rules in ways that resist competition. Over time, the right technology will win. I, didn't I get enough right to end the game and we mm. celebrate my, my victory? No, nope, I've got more quotes and we've got um, more time. I, I'm going to... I'm clueless here. Is there a poll the crowd? On wait, wait, don't tell me you can pull the crowd and ask them to choose. All right, yeah, let's do a poll the crowd. All Why right. not? Okay, That's so. a rule. All right, so uh, I'm going to read the quote again, and then we'll do a show of hands on this one, see if you guys know 
uh, Ryan's boss is better than him. So the quote is, there will always be someone who will tell you that you can't do what you want to do. Entrenched industries will always set the rules in ways that resist competition. Over time, the right technology will win. All right, so raise your hand if you think it was Tony Early, CEO of PG&E. For the podcast listeners, that is a whopping total of zero people. <laughs> well, let's clap instead of raise hands hand so our listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, clap. Oh, all right, so you know how to run a podcast. That's that makes right. sense. All right, zero people, and we'll do clapping from now on. Next. <laughs> all right, clap if you think that that was Lyndon Rive, CEO of SolarCity. All right, if you think it was Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla. And if you think it was Susan Kennedy, CEO of AMS. So we're going Elon here. I think Elon got the win on the claps. You're going with the crap. This is like, now we're doing who wants to be a millionaire, so you get to choose. I am conflicted. If I'm honest, the crowd said Elon, I think, is Lyndon. Ah, well, you are correct, and the crowd <laughs> is wrong. That was a Lyndon Rive. Sorry, I set you guys up. <laughs> All right, we'll do one more. This quote is, I could do a lot of things that didn't involve so much effort, time, and pain, but I get great satisfaction out of working for causes I really believe in. It takes idealism to do that. Some people have pure idealism, and they'll beat their head against the wall and never see an idea come to fruition. Pure idealism can come in the, or can often stand in the way of progress. Who's that? And here I'd be conflicted. That sounds either like Susan or Elon, and... Yeah, Susan's a pretty idealistic person, so I'm going to go with Susan. That is correct, Susan Kennedy. Oh, I forgot. We need to do one more. You're going to get this one right, but I like the quote anyway, so I'm going to read it. Solar and batteries go together like peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) I I have no idea. It's either Lyndon or, or Elon is my guess, and I'm going to go with Lyndon on that one. Oh, that one is Elon Musk. Is that a famous one that I didn't The man has it. I don't know, but it's a good quote, peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> it is a good one. He has a way with words. Okay, uh, we're going to take some questions from the audience if you want to hand up some cards. All right, we'll start with some advice. What advice do you have for a young, aspiring, there's, this is actually, there's a little carrot, young, aspiring energy entrepreneur. Uh, so thanks for the clarification, whoever asked that. For a young, aspiring en- energy entrepreneur in terms of identifying trends and pursuing innovative opportunities. I mean, and I'll add to that. I mean, you, you're talking about sort of basing your career on a couple of macro trends. Was it really that deliberate? Did you sit down and say, what are the big trends and how do I ride those? Or has it evolved over the course of your career? It was, it was definitely not deliberate at all. It was built from, I think, that moment when, when I told you I knew nothing about utilities. I had this deep sense of uh, uh, in, understanding that I didn't know enough, and I, and I was investigating a lot. And I think that over time, I've started to come to these trends that are, that are important to me. Um, ironically, though, literally when I was walking through the, uh, the paths of Berkeley to get to this panel, I was thinking uh, the best advice I have is to never listen to advice. Um, from a disgruntled perspective, Shale, I got some advice recently that I was like, that's terrible advice, and I'm going to just not listen to it. Mm. Um, and there's I remember more- giving you advice not so long ago. Was that... <laughs> 
there's something more instructive there. I think we all have more data points about ourselves and what we're capable of than anyone else will have about us. And you know, on the entrepreneurial aspect of that question, th that has been pretty critical to me. As an entrepreneur, you gotta push through and there's not a lot of folks that will tell you that they're right advice. Um, you should always be opening to hearing and listening, but uh, no one's got the answers. Great. Uh, this is a good question. What's the, the craziest and or most inspiring energy technology that you've heard of outside what you're actually doing? And I would append to that. You mentioned that uh, the grid engineering folks and the folks that were doing the products at Solar City threw out a bunch of really bad ideas. Yeah. I would love it if you would tell me what one of those ideas was. <laughs> the, that's a good question. Kind of like DC, there's not a lot of bad ideas. There, I think there's timing. I read an article a while ago, actually when I was making the change from PG&E, that it was a Google Ventures article that was talking about two different entrepreneurs. One entrepreneur was leading, had a history of leading three different industries, building amazing products, but all three industries were slow growth. And then another entrepreneur that was built three companies, uh, and she was third or fourth in each one of those industries, but they were massive growth industries. And, and the article said, always go for the entrepreneur who, who can time it, who knows the timing, knows when the market is going to embrace the need. Um, and so a lot of the things that came across our plate were from entrepreneurs that are really talented. They're generally good ideas. We were making timing decisions. So there were a couple, you know, CHP, mini, micro CHP we looked at. I love micro CHP. I think being able to harness high efficiency uh, at high efficiencies is, is an amazing technology. I didn't know how to make it work in the, in the near term. Um, some things like that. I, I, let me maybe come back to that if there's something really kooky. I want to say like someone pitched me on gerbils spinning wheels mm -hmm. or something like that. I don't have anything like that. I mean, when I was at GTM, we would get an, uh, an email pitching a perpetual motion machine like once a week. <laughs> yeah. The one, actually, my favorite from years ago. This is a real technology. It exists at pilot scale, and like, there's one in Australia, and there were plans to build one in the Mojave. It's the solar updraft towers. I don't know if you remember these. It's like you build a a bit a gigantic circular glass greenhouse, effectively, with one tower that, if constructed at scale, would be like the largest human construction on the planet that has a turbine in the middle of it. And the idea is that heat rises. So the air flows in through the greenhouse and then goes up and spins the turbine. Um, but it would have to be like absolutely massive to work. And there was a company Enviro Mission, that was like public in Australia trying to build this technology. The editors at GTM eviscerated it. I wasn't <laughs> part of that. Okay. Let me ask another question from the audience. Um, this is a good question. Do you think that aggregations of electric vehicles will be a significant distributed resource for the grid, or is it just an academic idea? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. We're thinking about it a lot right now. I'm pretty informed by my time at, at a company where the vehicles were really nice, and we they were expensive, and so the folks that own nice, expensive cars, uh, my personal opinion is that they aren't really excited to get out of bed to save $5 a month on uh, whatever kind of payment sharing scheme that you have. Um, it, but when more and more electric vehicles start to be spread across the entire industry and you get better range and, and the degradation of these batteries becomes less of an issue, I think we'll start to see that become pretty attractive. Um, so near term, my personal opinion, I'm a, a little bit hesitant to see to expect a massive use of really nice cars being used for grid services. Uh, but in the medium term, 
Absolutely. You got a bunch of batteries out there that probably will start to be used. Yeah. And also that's, you know, a pretty residential specific focus where, you know, commercial fleets and fleet operators, they, they have economies of scale where they can actually earn significant enough revenue earlier or municipal fleets and things like that. I think there's a case that you see vehicle to grid earlier in those parts of the world. This is very helpful for you to be able to c- combat these. You're right. I mean, nobody's got it right. And I think that perspective resonates. Yeah. This is a, a good question that, that I have as well. Um, which is, can AI or machine learning help manage the interdependencies and the issues with the storage value stack or with co-optimizing? And and I would reframe this question, and there's a lot of talk about machine learning and AI in storage optimization even specifically, um, and it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. How do you think about those tools, AI and machine learning, in terms of trying to do what you need to do, which is ultimately, again, just like charge and discharge batteries? I would say if you're not using machine learning and AI for optimizing a battery, you're you're behind the the cue ball. Is that the saying? My wife tells me I'm terrible with saying. So, insert a saying that says you're behind. Uh huh. And we'll we'll tape it in later. It's fine. okay. Um, it, it, and it's not it's not because it's trendy. It's because the number of decisions that have to be made uh, on the number of data points is beyond any individual human to, to be able to make those decisions. And it's even just a mechanical interaction. You can't make uh, 2,000 decisions every minute with a, with a human, so you need tools that, be, that can make these for you. Uh, so I don't think it's a, a, a fad. I don't think anybody in the industry would say they're not investing heavily in it and actually not in production at the moment. We, we rely heavily on machine learning at, at AMS. Is there any way for for those on the outside to figure out which claims about AI and machine learning are real and which ones are just vaporware? It's easy to say that you're using AI or machine learning. It's very hard. I find it very hard on the outside to discern amongst them. Yeah, I, I look for the number of use cases that are that companies are participating in. When you say you're using machine learning on a single use case, that doesn't really excite me or interest me. You know that's. What I take away is it's not a complex problem enough to really warrant the the Ferrari of data science to really attack that. Um, when you start getting into dozens of use cases and you get past the point of simple algorithms to be able to perform those functions, and if you have proof that you're actually participating in markets with all those, I take away you can't do that without machine learning and and progressively uh, AI. Uh, so those are the types of things I look like, look at. Are you actually participating in these markets doing all these different functions at the same time? We'll do maybe two more questions, uh, and then we'll adjourn. So uh, one more question. Now that you are no longer in the residential solar business, what do you think is the future of the residential solar business? <laughs> Pass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm bullish. I, I, or You can predict my answer based on the conversation about that NEM defense paper. For me... It wasn't ever so much about the residential solar business. I think that the residential solar business has a role to play, just like every other technology that can be produced uh, cost-effectively, add value, and customers will adopt. And I always frame it as a uh, an arrow and a quiver of a basket of technologies. And to the extent that solar can mature and become a part of a controllable portfolio, um, I think it'll be good for the grid, good for society, which will then also be good for um, good for the folks that are in that business. The 
you know, if I take my medicine on, say, focus on where the market is going and the natural equilibrium, I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to read any more papers about, about NEM and there's a, there's a transition that uh, reflects the underlying economics. I'm not saying that NEM doesn't do that, but I don't think it quite anticipates the desire to have time-dependent rates and, and eke out economic fat in the system. Um, and, and I think we'll see more folks... Oh, we are seeing more folks. I mean, the, the, most residential solar companies out there aren't residential solar companies anymore. They're residential solar companies and battery companies and load control, and they're starting to embrace these baskets of technologies anyways. So in that perspective, I'm very bullish on the residential energy management business. Great. And uh, final question, I guess this one's from me. So as, we, as you think about these transitions that we are in the midst of undergoing in this sector, decarbonization of the electricity sector, decentralization, digitization, pick your D word that people like to use, um, I think all of them are underway at various speeds. Um, what do you think is the biggest risk? Like what keeps you up at night if you're, you're trying to figure out how this is going to play out? It's probably resolve. It's such a big idea, but I mentioned it before. You know, the, the market risks, the, the entrenched players, the embracing of progress doesn't happen easily. And there's an obvious uh, analogy to politics about there's a tremendous amount of work that rely on people believing and pushing the envelope every day and moving towards fair structures. And I think most of the pace of the industry relies on, on those folks. Uh, the success of the industry, I think, is inevitable. We're going, these trends only go one way. You get more transactive, you get uh, reduced economic fat. Competition always increases, and the question is pace, uh, and what slows it up the most is not the engineers on my mind, it's the structures, the fairness, allowing a level playing field, those sorts of things. All right, that is all the time that we have. Please join me in thanking Ryan for joining us today. Really enjoy it, Jeff. Hey, that was a great conversation, right? So you're here at the end of the show. You clearly enjoyed the conversation. And if you are liking these long-form discussions that we're having on the future of energy, well, pass on the word. Uh, you know, subscribe to us anywhere you get podcasts. And then tell your friends and colleagues about the interchange. Um, it goes a long way, word of mouth. And reviews and ratings are the two best ways that we get more people to listen to this podcast. So um, do us a favor, go to Apple Podcasts right now and leave us a rating and review. And then maybe send a link to someone who's you know, trying to get a job in this industry, someone who works in this field specifically, someone who may be a skeptic about renewable energy or distributed grid. Um, you know, we want to foster a really good discussion here. So the more people we get to listen to it and the more feedback that we get, the more we can enhance this conversation about the direction that we're headed to decarbonize uh, our energy system. So again, that was Shale Khan talking with Ryan Hanley of Advanced Microgrid Solutions. Shale is my co-host. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations from Green Tech Media on the future of energy. Energy.